Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Uh, we hit a pretty big milestone last week. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my last episode at the ripe age of 29. Mm-hmm. I am now a decrepit 30 years old. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. You can't handle rainy Sundays without an afternoon nap. Yep. <laughs> but it was also uh, our 150th film going onto the list, which yes. is a pretty big deal, I think. Yeah, so if this week's movie ranks, it'll be the 151st film on the list. Of course, we don't know where on the list it'll rank, at what number. Yeah, I don't know anything about this movie. Um, All I know is its title, which is... The Neanderthal Man. And this is from 1953. It sounds like it could go either way, on the list or not. Mm. Who knows? How are you doing today, Sarah? Uh, Well, like I said, I am now the big 3-0, and I can hear my joints when they move. (laughs) It's like a day... I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not afraid about turning... 30, um, or aging at all. I look forward to getting gray and white hair, um, (laughs) but with my hair, like, you won't really see it anyways, unfortunately. It just looks so beautiful on people. I don't know. Sarah's got, um, red hair, if you don't know. Yeah. And so, one of the things about being a redhead is that, like, as her hair turns white, it'll probably just mean that it'll look like she's going blonde, until it's all white, and then it'll be like, oh. Yeah. But that's that's a long process, Sarah. That's that's a lot of future ahead of you. <laughs> that's fair. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm feeling, feeling good, feeling young and spry. Okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, yeah, I think I'm doing okay. Um, There's a lot of... Stuff going on. Um, yes. Mainly in the of, States. Uh, yeah, for all of our American listeners... I hope that you're safe. I hope that you're doing okay. I hope that you're doing the best that you can as you continue to live through, like, the first minute of a post-apocalypse movie where they're showing you all of the, like, news footage of the world collapsing. I saw someone on Twitter talking about how, like, we're currently in the uh, short bullet list of factors that led to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, just a general wish that everyone is safe and, uh, we hope that the continued delivery of Scream Scene is, I don't know, somehow a normalizing element in what has become a very chaotic world. Absolutely. So you were saying that you don't know anything about this movie. No, I presume it's about a man who is a Neanderthal. Um, I mean, within the context of the film, yes. (laughs) Okay. I just mean that, like, this film's ideas of what a Neanderthal is aren't super accurate. Well, I didn't come here for accuracy, Benjamin. <laughs> Tell me about it. So, uh, this film comes to us from the writing and producing team of Jack Pollockson and Aubrey Wisberg. Oh, Pollockson. Yeah, so we know these guys. They wrote and produced uh, The Man from Planet X, and Pollockson also co-wrote uh, The Son of Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. 
And after the success of Man from Planet X, uh, Pollux, Finn, and Whisper continued their successful collaboration as writers and producers on a series of B-movies in various genres. Uh, films with titles like The Lady in the Iron Mask, Captive Women, Sword of Venus, Problem Girls, and Port Sinister. <laughs> and these would be produced independently by their independent production company, and then distributed by studios like RKO, Columbia, and United Artists. Some of those have titles that are like, if not exploitation films, like on the it, Yeah, yeah, we're edging close. Yeah. So, uh, this latest independent project of theirs, uh, The Neanderthal Man, is kind of a Jekyll Hyde-style mad scientist horror movie, and it is distributed by United Artists. The director of this film is 62-year-old German Ewald André Dupont, and he was born in Germany on Christmas Day. He was Oh, he's a Christmas baby! Yeah. He was originally a newspaper journalist who then got started writing crime story screenplays back in 1918. Uh, he moved up the ranks and became a successful writer-director in the German film industry before he was brought to Hollywood in the mid-1920s by Carl Lemley. Oh, nice. Unfortunately, Dupont's films for Universal went over budget and failed to turn a profit, so Lemley canceled Dupont's contract and he returned to Europe, where he made a number of multilingual English-French-German sound films in the early 1930s. Now, when you say multilingual, do you mean multiple languages in, during the same movie, or do you mean the sort of adaptations into other languages like we see with Spanish Dracula? Uh, a little more like that second thing. This was very common in Europe at the time in the early days of sound when like subtitling and dubbing were complicated and expensive and hadn't really been perfected yet. So a lot of films you see would be shot multiple times. We yeah. actually saw this with Vampire. Um, we talked about this a little bit, but basically you would have, you know, the same cast, the same script, uh, the same crew, um, maybe different actors depending on their linguistic abilities, but you would basically shoot the scene in English, then shoot it in French, then shoot it in German, mm -hmm. you know, and then on to the next scene. And so you'd end up with three versions of the movie. Cool. However, uh, with Hitler's rise to power, Dupont immigrated to the United States uh, in the mid-1930s, where he made B-movies on Poverty Row. Because he was unhappy with that kind of work, he became a talent agent in 1940. Okay, interesting. Uh, however, he returned to filmmaking with The Scarf in 1951, which he wrote and directed. Good for him. And then made a few more B-movies like this one. Uh, he passed away in 1956. Uh, his final film was 1954's Return to Treasure Island which has the same producer, writer, and cast of Disney's Treasure Island, but was not made by Disney. But uh, they're clearly trying to ride the coattails. Yeah, well, because the producer figured out that he didn't need Disney to make a sequel because Treasure Island's in the public domain. Yeah. Now, despite Dupont's long career in history before doing this movie, for me the most shocking name to see on the crew list is the cinematographer, who is Stanley Cortez. We first saw the work of Stanley Cortez way back in 1941's The Black Cat. Oh, yeah. That was the one that was a sort the of old dark comedy, house yeah. comedy one, yeah. 
And that work is actually what won him the job in 1942 of shooting the Magnificent Ambersons for Orson Welles. Okay. Yeah, that's why that's why you'd be excited for it. Oh, what a movie. So, during World War II, uh, Cortez shot film for the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Uh, and then, through the 40s, 50s onwards, he would continue with a very distinguished cinematography career until his retirement in 1980, and he passed away in 1997. Wow. Yeah, so he's, like, weirdly slumming it here. Uh, I'm not really sure why. You know, sometimes you just need some work and, like, a, a big, well, kind of, like, a legendary kind of guy like DuPont comes over and you're like, yeah, sure, I'll work for you. Now, speaking of slumming it, it's never really a good sign when the top build actor in your movie has his name spelt wrong in the credits. Oh, no. Uh, but that's what happened to uh, the top actor in this movie, Robert Shane. His last name is spelt S-H-A-Y-N-E. And in the credits here, it's spelt S-H-A-N-E. Oh, okay. Now, he was born in New York State in 1900. He had begun acting on Broadway in 1931. Uh, from there, he transitioned to film in 1934, and he's one of those actors who basically would appear in either large roles in small movies or small roles in large movies. So this is a large role in a small movie. That's right. Uh, but his career lasted until his death in 1992. Dang. Now, we saw he him... He would have been 92. That's right. We have seen him before. We saw him as the romantic lead in 1946's The Face of Marble. Uh, so he's the other scientist working with John Carradine on the zombie ghost vampire dog. Right. Oh my god. Uh, but he is best remembered today as Inspector Henderson on the 1950s Adventures of Superman television series. Okie doke. Uh, so that's sort of Superman's liaison with the Metropolis Police Department. His final role was on the 1990s Flash television series as the newspaper vendor Reggie. <laughs> uh, now, in a small role in this film is an actress whom boomers may recognize. Uh, it's Beverly Garland. She was 27 years old uh, when she made this film and very much near the start of her career. But she has a small but memorable role here. We'll be able to pick her out. Uh, but she would go on to a very long and varied career in television that lasted until her death in 2008 at age 82. Wow. Uh, so she's on a lot of TV shows, whether that's guest roles or recurring roles or regular roles, just lots of stuff through the years. And by coincidence, she also appeared on a Superman television series. She was Lois Lane's mother on the 1990s Lois and Clark show. Oh, neat. Another notable performer in a minor role here is Robert Easton, uh, who had a very long career as a character actor in film and television, but became best known in Hollywood as a dialect coach. Okay. Um, he had a pronounced stutter as a child, and learning to overcome it gave him an interest in the mechanics of speech, mm -hmm. and so he became an expert in phonetics. Uh, so he sort of started this, like, you know, at first it was a way to, like, branch out and get more roles. He could do all these voices. And then it became this, like, side gig coaching other actors uh, in accents and voices and things. Among the many, many, many actors that he did voice coaching for, 
Uh, he coached Ben Kingsley's Indian accent for Gandhi, uh, Al Pacino's Cuban accent for Scarface, and Forrest Whitaker's Ugandan accent for The Last King of Scotland. Cool. Um, he also did work for, like, CEOs and, like, other people who want to, like, lose an accent or have, like, a certain accent for, like, communication or respect reasons, etc. Yeah. He passed away in 2011 at age 81. Wow. Now, the film's makeup work is by Harry Thomas, who was an indie B-movie veteran of scores of cheap sci-fi and horror flicks. I feel like with a name like Harry Thomas, he might have some kind of, like, inside look into how the Neanderthal man might look. That's a bad joke, Sarah. (laughs) Harry? Yeah, no, I get it. Okay. (laughs) Like, that's why I knew it was a joke. Doesn't make it good. Listen. What's uh, sort of funny here, though, is in addition to all of these cheap 1950s uh, programmers that he did, he was also the makeup artist on the 1950s Adventures of Superman television show. (laughs) However, uh, Robert Shane didn't spend any makeup time in the chair for his transformation into the Neanderthal Man, because the Neanderthal Man uh, in the title was portrayed in all of his scenes by a stuntman named Wally Rose. The Neanderthal Man was released on June 19th, 1953, and it was not well received by critics. The what film. A, what a surprise. The film, uh, which runs 78 minutes, was considered overlong oh. and dull, as well as cliched. Uh, the makeup was severely criticized as being unconvincing and um, hokey. And uh, DuPont was criticized for failing to bring any life to the unimaginative script or doing anything to elevate the film above its B-movie origins in the way that other directors had shown was possible. Well, you've really uh, set the stage for us. It's also in the public domain, so you can find it on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist if you want to watch along. We'll let you know if uh, that is something you want to spend 78 minutes doing. But in any case, um, if you do want to watch along, you can head to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com to find that playlist. Ben, what, are you, how, how excited do you feel about this movie? Do you feel apprehensive, or do you feel, like, resigned? <laughs> uh, I, mm, this just feels like another day at the office, Sarah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, well, folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss... The Neanderthal Man from 1953, directed by Evald André Dupont. See you on the other side, everybody. Just like to give a trigger warning, the following discussion of this film will contain discussions of rape. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Neanderthal Man from 1953, directed by E.A. Dupont. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? I agree with that review you shared of it goes on for too long, even at 78 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, The editing is wild. Yeah, in that it's bad. Yes. Yeah, the choices that Uh, were made. I feel like... The choices that were made... Implies choices? Implies choices, but it also captures my disbelief with this movie a little bit. Interesting. We can dig into that a little more, but first let's talk about 
what happens in this movie. Yeah. Um, and we can maybe hit some of these points as we go. Sure. So, The Neanderthal Man is set in the High Sierras in California. And I just want to throw a shout out to any of our listeners who do live in California or have ever lived in California. Because I am curious if the accent of people who live in, like, Central Valley and, like, that sort of area is sort of a, like, hey, Sheriff, we don't take kindly to know nothing monsters not near anyhow kind of, like, hick accent. That's what the movie seems to think they sound like. Yeah, but... but we're definitely in California. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but I'm just... Please let us know. So this movie starts in the home of Professor Groves, who is played by Robert Shane. And he lives in, like, a mountain house, like, out in the mountains, like, uh, uh, all by himself. Like, with his, his daughter. daughter and his maid. But, like, you know, there's no other houses around. Uh, it's the farthest out from the, like, community that you can drive. Uh, after that, there's no roads. And he is, as his title suggests, a scientist of some variety. And the movie starts with a growl and, like, some smashing and sounds of glass breaking and stuff that, like, gets Professor Groves in from another room to his lab to see what's happened. Uh, And everything's all smashed up, and the window's smashed. Something has clearly escaped from his lab. What has gotten out is a saber-toothed tiger in the fiction of the movie. A bunch of hunters see it roaming around the mountainside. There's the typical, like, they get laughed at by the local townsfolk. And it's the townies who all have this hick accent. Like, Professor Groves doesn't talk like that. But it's sort of enough to get the game warden, uh, Oaks, to sort of investigate. He sees the creature. And in all of the long shots where this thing has to move, it's a tiger. It's just like a tiger that they got from, like, the The L.A. Zoo Zoo or something for use in this movie. It does not look like, you know, the saber-toothed tiger they're describing with the long tusks or that, like, is twice as big as a mountain lion or whatever. But (laughs) we do occasionally get split-second close-ups of this beast when it, like, attacks people. And the reason why they're split second <laughs> is because clearly what it is is, like, a stuffed toy of, like, a tiger yeah. with some, like, tusks jammed up into the mouth, which now is, like, permanently open because it can't close with those tusks. And they just have that come at you, like, as quick as you can and cut away from it as quick as you can. But they didn't do any effort to put any tusks on the live tiger. Would you? No, but, like, (laughs) I'm just saying. With this creature clearly being beyond anyone's ability to, like, figure out what it is, Oakes goes into L.A. to find a Dr. Harkness, who is a zoologist, uh, to bring him out to the High Sierras, to the community, uh, to investigate. Harkness comes out, and he stops... At the only building in town we ever see, which is Webb's Cafe, which is... Which also is kind also of like is an a, inn. Yeah, it's also a hotel or motel, I think. Yeah, it's like Dungeons and Dragons rules. Right. You know, the Any, local pub also acts as an inn. Right. Webb's Cafe is where we usually see all the townsfolk if they're talking about stuff. 
Webbs, who runs it, is from Texas. He has a waitress named Nola. That's Beverly Garland's character. And we all are meeting them as Dr. Harkness meets them. Harkness also meets another woman, Ruth Marshall, and we find out that Harkness is going out to meet Oaks, who's out in the brush trying to find this beast. So he's going to have to drive his car up to Dr. Groves' house, because that's as far as the road goes, and then just, like, wait for the game warden to come back, because he's not going to be able to find him. There's no Google Maps. There's no cell phones. It's 1953. <laughs> and coincidentally, Ruth is also heading to the professor's house because she's his fiance. Uh, so her Plot car, twist. yeah, her car is broken down. So Dr. Harkness offers to give her a lift. They head over to the house and we meet sort of the whole household. So in addition to professor Groves, there's his daughter, Jan, who is like maybe in her early twenties. Yeah. Like she lives at home, but she's old enough to be, eventually a love, an implied love interest for Dr. Harkness without it being super weird. Dr. Harkness is definitely like a young, rugged, square-jawed, generic 50s man, whereas Professor Groves is a much older, middle-aged man. And so the implication here must be that Jan's mom has died sometime in the past, and now he's seeing Ruth and trying to get that middle-aged romance going. Oh, jeez. Also in the house is Celia, their maid, who is Mexican, deaf, mute, and illiterate. Yep. So, yep. They, they... So you, you kind of spend a bit of the movie wondering why they just have this extra character whose only purpose is to, like, walk into a scene and hand someone a cup of tea and then walk away. Uh, but we're getting there. Mm -hmm. They do do some quote-unquote, version of sign language. Yeah, I don't know enough about sign language to judge what we see on screen between Celia and Jan, but the in, the point is supposed to be that they can, that Jan can speak sign language to Celia. That being said, I do want to say it's better than some of the sign language we've seen in these B-movies in the past that was clearly just some actor on set, like, wiggling their hand randomly. There's some attempt here to make it seem like it's communicating meaning. But they're also doing it with, like one hand. Yeah. Uh, and that is very limited for full language. If they are doing... There was a couple of signs that had two hands, but it was... It felt like a mix of sign language, maybe, but also charades. Now, meanwhile, Professor Groves is not at home, and Dr. Harkness has to wait for Oaks to come back. So Jan invites him into the home to stay the night while he's waiting for the warden. The reason the professor is not at his home is because he's in L.A. at a meeting of the Naturalists Club, which, again, now I want to stress, the Naturalists Club. This is a club of, like, scientists, you know, in the field of, I guess, naturalism. Probably, like, natural history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's not, like, an official academic body. I want to make that clear. Yeah. He's at a meeting, and he's presenting his theories. And Professor Groves' theory is that by examining the skulls of primitive hominids, uh, he has determined that because the skull cavity size of, like, the Java Man fossil, the Piltdown Man fossil, which was proven to be a hoax the year this movie came out, or, like, the Neanderthal Man fossil, all have skull cavities that are about the same size, if not larger, than modern man, that the idea that, like, primitive man was, like, some dumb, brutish animal 
uh, and modern man is immensely superior is a false notion, uh, and that, in fact, maybe primitive man was even smarter or more capable than modern man. And I'm going to hit pause right here and say that I appreciate when science tries to be like, hey, maybe we shouldn't just, like, assume that we as modern humans are Mm -hmm. inherently superior to anything that's come before, Mm -hmm. even past civilizations or whatever. But that's not the direction this movie goes in, but I just wanted to, like, go record scratch. Sure. Here, put this in, and woo! We're back into the regular episode. So, Groves basically gets lapped out of the room. And this is for a couple reasons. The first is that the gathered scientists are like, hey man, the idea that skull size and shape has, or even brain size, has any direct correlation to intelligence is like an old-fashioned debunked idea. Which is true, and Groves being in favor of it kind of puts Groves in the same ballpark as phrenologists, and phrenologists are kind of in the same ballpark as eugenicists and you know, it's just, it's bad company to be in, Dr. Groves. To do my own record scratch, Ears. both of these sides of this debate are kind of right. Yeah. Uh, Neanderthal man's brain is comparable in size to uh, modern human's brain. However, different parts of the Neanderthal brain are larger or smaller than our brains. Uh, parts having to do with like complex thought and emotion and philosophizing and that kind of stuff is bigger in ours. And stuff about like sight and smell and like interpreting the world around you is bigger in the Neanderthal. So, so Groves is kind of right in that like Neanderthal man was not stupid. Uh, they just lived a very, very long time ago. We were just as stupid back then because that's the other thing this movie gets wrong. Neanderthal man is not an earlier stage of modern man. We were two coexisting species, and Neanderthal man died out. Uh, but and, and ours is uh, Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens. Cool. Yeah, instead of Homo neanderthalis. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, the people disagreeing with Groves are correct in that skull size and brain size has nothing to do with intelligence. What really causes the breakdown, though, here, is that Groves has a really fucking bad attitude. Because at the first sign of anyone disagreeing with him, he goes on an extremely loquacious speech about how small-minded and closed-off and hypocritical these so-called men of science are. You won't listen to anything that questions your views. Which is kind of funny because the one who flies off the handle when anyone questions his views is Groves. Yeah. Um, so he... Funny how that seems to always be the case. Yeah. He insults everyone, like makes ad hominem attacks on like everyone here. Uh, and that's, you know, they're st- too stupid to understand what he's saying. And all and they're so they saying... Go, hey, um, can you not do that, please? And maybe give us like some proof. Like, that's how science works. You have a hypothesis, then you prove it. And he's, like, so insulted that they would even ask for proof. He's like, proof! And then (laughs) they start to leave, and he's like, ah, cowards! You won't even discuss my theories! Debate me, cowards! Yeah. And then as they're walking, like, they're basically all out the room, and he's finally like, fine, I'll give you proof! Uh, So Groves is an asshole. Um, this is all the setup that Groves has the same, like, they laughed at me at the Academy kind of background that all right mad scientists have. It's just clear that Groves is like, really is like, um, is he's mad. He's not. Yeah. And there's no, 
He's not right. Yeah. And... That means he's wrong, Ben. We'll get more proof of that a bit later. <laughs> uh, but uh, back at the ranch, Harkness and Oaks have reunited, and they go out to hunt down this saber-toothed tiger. Groves comes home from L.A. and is pissed off to find other people in his house. Including his fiance. Yes. Yeah, he's basically just pissed off that there are people there. And also when, like, he finds out that there's, like, a noted scientist who's interested in a saber-toothed tiger there, he goes out of his way to be like, that's fucking stupid. What are you, like, you're both stupid. Stupidity is contagious. I'm the only smart person alive. And because we know that the saber-toothed tiger escaped from Groves' lab, it's kind of a thou doth protest too much sort of situation. Harkness and Oaks go out into the woods, they hunt down the saber-toothed tiger, and they shoot it full of bullets. So they kill it, and then they realize that, like, if just the two of them bring this thing back into town, they could be accused of, like, perpetuating a hoax. Like, every other time someone's brought, like, a dead yeti or something into town. Um, so they go over to Groves' house to be like, hey, come with us to the dead body, and so you can verify that it's there before we move it, and, like, that it's real. And Groves is like, well, this is stupid, and you're leading me off to some sort of stupid practical joke, and I'm going to be super angry with you, uh, but fine, if you insist. And they bring him there, and of course, the dead saber dagger isn't there anymore. And Groves we is, never resolve that. Nope. We never find out why. Nope. Uh, Im- the implication is that somehow, in between the time they killed it and got back to Groves' house, Groves somehow got out there and, like, moved it. Like, that's the only answer, but the movie never actually says that. Sure. Um, now, Groves is basically like, you've wasted my time. Get the fuck out of my face. He goes back to his experiments. So, Ruth his fiance is like, Hey, I've noticed you've been an asshole lately. And I was wondering if maybe we could just be like nice human beings to each other again. Cause I'm your fiance. And he's like, you don't believe in my theories either. You laugh at me too. Just get the fuck out of here. Like I don't need anybody like fuck you. And she's like, well, fine. But if you need me, like, you know where to find me, I'll be at the motel. Like, I, I love you. And he's like, Pfft. Love? Who needs love? I have science. And I will say that in the moment when Groves decides that he's going to inject himself with his serum, Robert Shane does look convincingly batshit crazy. Yeah. So, as you may have guessed at this point, Professor Groves' serum is one that reverts a creature to a previous stage of evolution. Because his theory is that all creatures share all the previous stages of their evolution within them. Which... Yeah, like like genetic history right. or genetic memory or something. And I think we've had like similar theories on the show before. Yeah, in movies like The Ape Man. Yeah. Um, now, this also is semi-plausible from a mid-century perspective because um, for a long time it was believed that like the human fetus goes through all the stages of human evolution in its development in the womb, uh, which is (laughs) not, it's not true. Yeah, I'm just imagining, like, a little, like, caveman growing in in utero. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, (laughs) And just eventually, but, like, also starting from, like, the little, like, amphibian that crawls out of the sea. So the reason why, like, that was believed for a while is, like, because you start with, like, 
the single, you know, the, the single cell. And then like early fetuses will have like the vestigial tail and like these kinds of things. And so like, this is the idea, but, um, that's not really how in utero (laughs) development works. Um, I'm no scientist, but, but I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. But I can see how they got the idea for this film. Yeah. So he injects himself. Uh, he has to this point been experimenting on cats and we know that because a, a saber toothed tiger burst out of his lab and B, he has a cat in the, in a cage in his lab that never shuts the fuck up, probably because it's a cat in a cage. So we're never really directly shown this, but like you can put two and two together that he's been using the serum on the cats to make the saber tooth tigers. When he injects himself, uh, we get a honestly pretty decent transformation sequence uh, where, you know, his, his hands get all hairy and claw like, and his face gets all, you know, simian and, and has more hair and stuff. And he transforms in the close-up into, like, a pretty good Neanderthal man makeup. Yeah, it is actually fairly impressive on him. Then we cut to the wide shot. And the issue here, clearly, (laughs) is that once he's out and about doing Neanderthal stuff, they wanted it to be a stuntman. Because Robert Shane is, you know... Like 53 Yeah, he's like 53 years old, and he's not going to be able to do all the, like physical stunts that you need the monster to do. We cut to the stuntman. And for some reason, rather than putting the good makeup on the stuntman, what they've done is put like a Halloween store ass gorilla mask on him. Maybe not gorilla, but like it's an ape man mask. And it's like... Bad. It's bad. It's clearly a mask for one thing, because it doesn't move at all. The eyes are painted on and then, like, have holes in them so his real eyes can can see. see. But also, they've put some fur on his hands, but otherwise he's doing the Lon Chaney thing of, like, he's still wearing a shirt and pants and and shoes and stuff. And the proportions are all wrong. Because this stuntman's really thin. And so the, the mask on his head makes him look like his head's way too big for his body. It's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. He goes out. To rampage through the woods. Uh, he kills a dude. And his uh, dog. And his dog. The dog does die. Yes. And he also comes across, like, this couple in the woods. One of them is, like, a member of the Forest Rangers. And the other one is Nola, the waitress from Webb's Cafe. And they are out in the woods on a picnic, also taking <laughs> some sexy photos yeah, of she, Nola. Yeah, she changes into what is either a bikini or her undies. Yeah, so that, like, her boyfriend can take some sexy photos of her, as you do. And <laughs> Neanderthal Man Groves shows up, kills the boyfriend, and makes off with Nola into the bushes. With her just screaming all the way. Obviously, the bodies of the dead folk are found. And the assumption of the authorities is there's, like, a maniac on the loose. So first we had a saber-toothed tiger, now we got a maniac. This is way too much for the locals to handle. So the state police get called in to, like, search the countryside for this maniac. And, you know, Harkness is back at Groves' place, because I guess he doesn't have anywhere else to go. And him and Jan are getting really concerned about her dad, who's who's been, been like, sick in the bedroom, like, this whole time. That's his cover. Yeah, because he's been overworking himself. And, you know, they're getting really worried, like, what's going on? What's happening to these people? And then Celia spots Nola 
clearly in distress outside. They bring her in, and they ask what happened, and she's like, oh yeah, like this hairy beast, it was more animal than man, came out of the bushes and killed Buck, and then, and then, and it becomes really clear that Neanderthal Man Groves has raped Nola. Yep. She doesn't use that word, no one in the movie uses that word, but just from the way she's acting and the things she's not saying and the and way the people... she's describing. The things she's describing, the way people talk around it, um, the the fact that when they call a doctor in for her later, the doctor's diagnosis is she has suffered the greatest shock a woman can receive. Um, yep. All makes it clear that she was raped. And, you know, the thing about this, on the on, in some way I actually kind of admire this. Because... We're making textual kind of what the implied threat with all the monsters who always carry off damsels always is. Yeah. And in terms of being like an effective horror movie, you know, it it's more horrific when the crime is committed than if the damsel in distress gets saved, you know? And Beverly Gardland, like, puts the work into, like, her, like, post-trauma performance here yeah she's really good she's not um for for lack of a better word like overselling it to the point where you're like not really able to get more than just hysteria from her like she's able it's it's specific like yeah like her performance is what is what is enabling you to read between the lines absolutely and the thing is i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing we are not at a place where rape is like a super overused horror trope just because of like the production code and stuff right and you know as i said it's kind of daring for a movie to go there at this point in history the thing that makes it weird because her performance is so good it makes for a really disturbing scene in the middle of what is otherwise like a mystery science 3000 let's mock this as we watch it kind of movie it just feels like the movie just suddenly gets real yeah, and it also makes it really weird how they don't really address that crime, it's... that that assault, in the rest of the movie. Whenever they talk about what the ape man is doing, what the Neanderthal is doing, um, it's, oh, he's murdered some people. Well, Nothing about... I will say that I think that the fact that they keep bringing up, like, when the posses are out looking for him... And they're talking about, you know, the state police is looking for them and, like, the guys in town are looking for them. The way that they keep saying, like, oh, and if, like, the boys from town get a hold of them, like, he, you know, they're not going to have nobody to arrest. And, like, yeah. it's specifically the doctor who in, who examines Nola who says that. And that has the same tone as, you know, lynching. Yep. Which is, like, you know, was typically a response to the fact of, like white Southerners feeling sexually threatened by freed black men and was typically done on an accusation of that black man having raped a white woman. Yeah, so, which in our current cultural context is feeling very... Uh, yeah, we're just going to Teflon by that, I think, at the moment here. Yeah. But I do think that the movie is addressing that in that way. Um, what it does make difficult for the rest of the movie is for the rest of the movie to kind of get back to where it wants to be by the end. And I'll continue with the plot summary so that that makes sense. 
So, at this point, Harkness is like, okay, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. Because I shot a saber-toothed tiger, which disappeared, and now people are dying, and now there's a gorilla man out here, like, raping townsfolk. So he decides to do some snooping around Dr. Groves' lab, and the results of that snooping is that he discovers Groves' like notes and like serums and like test animals and his like um he's taken like photographic records and all of this and what he has discovered is basically being able to piece together what Groves is doing, which is these experiments to prove that animals have their earlier selves within them. Uh he started trying with dogs, and it didn't work because apparently We've just made dogs so successfully subservient to us that you just can't get the wolf back, I guess. So he switched to cats, which cats remember their heritage. <laughs> uh, and so he was able to successfully turn them into saber-toothed tigers. Next step is human experimentation. And we finally learn <sighs> why Dr. Groves has a deaf, mute, illiterate maid. It's so she can't tell you that he's been experimenting on her. Yep. Which ends up being kind of not the point anyways, because when confronted with this knowledge that he has been experimenting on Celia and turning her into a Neanderthal woman, um, Celia doesn't know and apparently just doesn't remember and is sincere in that. And we kind of then get the explanation that maybe he's been drugging her. Yeah. So... Whole lot of yikes. And again, this coupled with his actions as a Neanderthal, and the fact that, like, the movie has painted him pretty solidly as, like, a grade-A asshole, like, Groves is a villain at this point, right? Yeah. Like, guilty of numerous crimes, numerous heinous acts. Anyways, he stopped experimenting on Celia, though, because apparently his <laughs> serum just was incompatible with the female constitution. Oh, boy. Uh, so then he, of course, starts experimenting on himself, because he's a mad scientist. Now, the fact that when he turns into the Neanderthal man, he goes out and in his, in his own description, in his own notes, says that he can only think of, like, base survival instincts and the need to kill proves that his theory that Neanderthal man is just as smart and capable as modern man is false. The movie never gets around to saying that it has proven that he is false, but, like, yeah, yeah my dude... Clearly, your theory was wrong then. Yeah, you fucked up. Yeah. So, Harkness and Jan, having realized who the Neanderthal man is, have decided, like, we gotta track him down. We gotta find him first, because otherwise the posses are gonna shoot him full of bullets. Which they should. Yeah, I mean, at this point, the only real reason to keep him alive is, on Jan's side, it's like, well, it's her dad. Yeah. And on Harkness's side, there's some argument about, like, well, when he's in Neanderthal form, maybe he doesn't know what he's doing. Which, okay, even if we grant you that, he's still a dude who performed human experiments on his deaf-mute maid who he drugged. Uh, and, like, is, like, crazy yeah. and, like, irresponsible and, like, an asshole. Yeah. So, like, you know, he's not... This isn't like a... It's not a saint. It's not a Jekyll Hyde perfect kind of situation here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, as they're trying to track him down, they think about, how in all this wilderness, like, how do we do it? And they realize that Ruth 
Groves' fiance, who we have not seen since, like, the middle of the movie, has been staying at, you know, Cafe Web. Web's <laughs> Cafe. <laughs> so, right on cue, Neanderthal Groves attacks Web. Doesn't kill him for reasons. I guess so that he can testify in the next scene. Webb, by the way, is played by an actor who looks exactly like if you turned to a casting director and said, listen, find me Lon Chaney, but not Lon Chaney. Yeah, it is uncanny. Um, and, of course, he, he captures Ruth. It is unchainy. <laughs> he brings Ruth to a cave, and the posse surround the cave, and Jan and Harkness arrive. And it's not really clear what's going on. Yeah. Because Ruth comes out from the cave and she's all like, don't shoot, without really any follow-up to that. And she's like standing in front of the Neanderthal man when he comes out behind her. This kind of implies that Ruth knows that the Neanderthal man is Groves, but the movie never follows up on this idea. Yeah, there's the, no like her like being carried off and seeing like, oh, it's his watch or something. Yeah, there's nothing. nothing. Like that. Uh, or there's no scenes, actually, where we see just the two of them in the cave or anything. Like, we hear that she's been kidnapped, and then we go find her at the cave. But we don't... There's a lot of that in this movie. A lot of this movie is people describing exciting events that have actually happened off-screen. Classic B-movie. Yeah. So, the posse interpret this as that he's using her as a human shield, like as a hostage. So, like, well, we can't... We gotta get him away from her. You know, we can't shoot him until then. And Harkness and Jan, who don't want him shot for reasons, uh, decide, okay, well, I can get him away from the girl. So Harkness goes ahead with no gun, and then is like, all right, Ruth, tell him to get away from here. They'll shoot him otherwise. And so she, like, tells Neanderthal Groves to run, and then he runs. Well, this is a stupid idea, because now he doesn't have the human shield in front of him, and the posse just shoots him full of fucking bullets. And we get him back to the house, and Jan's explaining to everyone, like, yeah, so you actually shot my dad. And we get the classic, like, he's dead now, so he reverts, laps, dissolves back into human form thing. And Harkness gives, like, a big, long speech that's essentially just the typical, like, he meddled in things that man was not meant to know. And then once Groves is human again, he manages to uh, sort of mumble out better this way and then he dies yep and that's the movie it certainly is better that way yes yes yeah i you were pretty fed up with this by I was the time it was fed over up with this movie um i will say that the music in this movie is great huh I don't know if I would say it's great. I it's will great say for a B movie. Yes, I will say that it's working hard. The music working is working hard. for its paycheck. It uh, it has some really neat um, motifs that sound inspired by like a mix of King Kong mm -hmm. with like other horror things. There's no theremin because we're not doing science fiction, despite the Mad Scientist. Yeah, it, it's it's a it, good score. It's a good score. Um, so shout out to Albert Glasser. Um, over 50 years from the movie. The thing about the score, I guess the reason why it didn't strike me as a great score, I think on the page, it's good. The thing about it is that a lot of the times I was laughing at it in the movie because the score is <laughs> doing the heavy lifting of trying to make scenes exciting or threatening or something when just fucking nothing is happening on screen. Like, there's a scene where Groves comes home 
and he goes to go into his living room and then stops and instead goes down into the basement. And this is right before he experiments on, on himself. But the big music sting of like, dun, 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 is when he's like standing there in the foyer and like turns from living room to basement. And like, it's just like to get this huge, big musical sting at a moment of like, he changes direction in the hallway. Just the way that the scene is shot, it's just a little funny. It is, absolutely. And, um, and there's stuff like that kind of throughout the score. Yeah, but I mean... Credit where credit's due. Credit where credit is due. Um, episode 4, Star Wars, wouldn't be as good as it is if the music wasn't doing heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just structured better. Yeah. Because the editing in The Neanderthal Man is... Um, it's not the worst. It's not the worst we've seen, but it is very inexplicable. It feels like... There are times where, like, there's no cuts, as if, like, they just did one single take, and so there's nothing to cut to. And then there's others where it's, like, in a span of, like, a a single sentence, we're getting, like, several different angles. It's it's very strange. And none of it is, like... Motivated. Or continuity editing, either. Like, it's... So this movie isn't, I would say, directed well, and... Given that it's Stanley Cortez, I would say this movie isn't shot well. Yeah. It looks like, you know, your typical cheap B-movie. A lot of shots of people full, like, head to feet, standing on a soundstage, all kind of lined up, you know, so that the camera can see all of them at once, kind of talking to each other, um, you know, mid-shots, not a lot of anything interesting. The editing feels like some weird attempt to break up the monotony of the shots where it's like, Oh yeah, it's kind of boring to just look at this one mid shot through this conversation scene at the breakfast table. So we'll cut to like some close ups, but the cuts just like don't make sense. They're not cutting on dialogue. They're not doing match on action. They're just, it's just like they had some other footage of the scene from other angles lying around and they just kind of like sprinkled it. Yeah, well, we should we should justify why we use this much film during filming. So let's let's put it in. Yeah, it's just like cutting to a reaction when it's not a reaction. Like it's bizarre. Some of it, I think, has to be like weird covers for mistakes. I yeah, obviously. you know where it's like oh the the boom mic dipped in, so let's cut to the alternate angle just for the part of this take that the boom mic dipped in because otherwise we liked this take. The filmmaking, like, just the filmmaking is not good. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I feel like, like, Robert Shane is doing a good job acting in some of those shots. But not overall. I think the only person who is kind of blowing me away with acting is um, Beverly Garland. I think Beverly Garland's the only person who gives a good performance, but what I will say about the majority of the rest of the cast is they are trying. Everybody, for the most part in this movie, is acting their hearts out, like, trying to, like, swing for the fences. It seems like almost out of a desire to try and, like... Liven it up. Elevate this shitty, cliched material somehow. You know, uh, the actress who's playing Ruth is just going for it in the scene where she, like, breaks up with 
uh, Groves. And Groves is just going for it in all of his speeches about how stupid the world is. And, you know, Jan and part is... part of that works because Shane's voice is very good. Yes. Jan is, like, going for it in the scenes where she's expressing horror about what's happening in the town around her. The The issue is... So, so the script. Okay. Yeah. I think... Okay, the overall impression that I get from everything in this movie is that this movie kind of has delusions of grandeur. Yeah, I think um, Man from Planet X, its success has gone to Pollux Finn's head a little bit. Yeah, it just feels like this movie really wants to be something more and better than it is. Yeah. Um, this, this... But what it feels like is a ripoff of like the Paula Dupree stuff from the 40s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the Paula Dupree stuff, along with, like, Bela Lugosi's Ape Man, and, you know, all of those kind of movies, Return of the Ape Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, okay, I, I don't know how to, like, really describe this, but, like, so the story is bad. Yeah. The story's cliche, but the dialogue is bad in a very different way. Normally in these B-movies, you have a very cliche, predictable story, along with very boring, banal dialogue. Here what we have is the predictable, cliche story, but the dialogue is, like, super overwrought. The dialogue is being written, like, every line is the, like, final... Most important thing. Right, and, like, the final line from, like, a Twilight Zone or Star Trek episode... <laughs> yeah, that's where actually we're, like, a great you know, way to describe it. Where, like, where we're expressing, like, deep philosophical truths about the nature of man. This is the theme. Right. And everybody's talking with, like, $10 words and, like, with their sentences structured as if they were in some really eloquent literary play. Yeah, like, the person writing this had a very well-used thesaurus on their desk. Yeah, like... Pollux Finn's script here is very, like, Claremontian, you know? Yes. Like, it's very... That's an X-Men reference, um, in case anyone didn't follow that. Yeah, Chris Claremont wrote X-Men comics where, like, there'd be a panel of someone just standing there, and then, like, the word All balloon them for the their speech balloon. would just, yeah, like, go up and over them like an arch of just this never-ending... And there would be parts of it that are spoken aloud, and then other parts that are clearly, like, their internal monologue, and and it's, it's like, a full panel, a full page of that. Yeah. And there's, like, you know, Claremont is good, but... It, it, I, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. And this movie is trying to do that. Yeah, so, like... The thing about the acting that happens, Shane is really trying to give Groves, like, emotions. He's really trying to, like, be a mad scientist. Like, some guy who's so fucking arrogant that he just thinks he's the only person on the planet who's ever had a thought. And it would be so arrogant and egotistical to, like, think that he can, like, play God and perform experiments on people. Like, Groves feels really authentic to what if someone was, like, actually a mad scientist would sure. feel like. You know, they wouldn't feel like Henry Frankenstein from the Universal movies where it's like, oh, you know, I'm just this misunderstood idealist. They're going to feel like Nazis. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because that's what mad scientists do. And have done, done at this point in history. Right. Um, you know, everyone's going for it and really trying to give their characters something. But when you combine that with the overwrought dialogue, it just becomes like this pure, ludicrous, grade-A ham 
because you have people delivering just the most cliched soap opera ass lines with just like so much conviction when like, you know, delivering them in the B movie like deadpan would have killed it too. But like just maybe something a little bit understated, something that sounds a little bit more like human speech speech patterns might have helped this overwrought dialogue like slip under the radar a bit better, you know? Yeah. What what really gets my goat about this movie is that like okay, so it really just really bothers me how Nola's rape mm-hmm. and Celia's whole experience of working for these people yes. is just like flavor. It's it's yeah. like these are like huge things even even without Nola's thing. Celia who like we don't even get a reaction of her, the realization of he's been doing these experiments on me while I've been drugged and we we don't get anything from her there's explicit text around her explicit dialogue around her um yeah. where Jan is like it's really hard to tell what Celia's thinking or feeling and it's like just fucking ask her you're the one who can fucking talk with her using sign language or what this movie considers it and just the fact that in this movie, the one person who is designated as disabled and Mexican, yeah. like not white, yeah. is a prop. A prop to be experimented upon, mm-hmm. which like has been happening for like Yeah, that's got its own troubling implications. Yeah. And and it's just like, yeah, that but uh, who cares? He had to start doing it on himself anyways because yeah, like, women, am I right? Well, because that's the thing. So, like, there are ways that, you know, Celia's plot and Nola's plot would be, I think, fine. Which is to say that, like, if the ideas were trying to say that, like, Groves is a bad guy, then, like, it's fine for him to do bad things, right? Like, something bad happening in a movie doesn't you know, isn't an automatic strike against the movie. That's storytelling. Same with Nola's rape. Like, that's, this is a horror movie. And, you know, being experimented on, being raped, like, these are horrific things. I I get it. What the movie fails at is the way that it throws these characters away. Like... Yeah, it fails at giving those things the proper uh, weight or, or space or gravity because immediately it's just like kind of tossed away and no but we need to save groves from being shot that's, by that's everyone. the biggest thing is because like, it's like yeah it is better this way that you've died dude like you, you deserve will, to die you deserve to die you should be put on trial for everything that you've been doing but oh no he's someone's dad deserve to die in i want to be clear production code like sense of deserve to die like in the storytelling sense, in the way that stories are structured and production code has, you know, the rules of storytelling exactly, at this point yeah. in history are you do bad shit, you do not live to the end of the movie, right? And, and yeah, like, the ways that they could have fixed these two elements, because the, the, the two problems with them are, as you said, the women are thrown away, and I did have, like, you know, my little counterpoint to you on Nola, that, like, there's some acknowledgement there, but... We never see her again after that scene. Even when the doc comes to examine her, we don't see him examine her. We see him give his, like, report to Jan. And then even when she's ready to go home and, like, she's fine again, we hear from Jan that she's fine again. But we never actually see her ever again. And we never see Celia after 
she learns that she's been experimented right. and, upon. And, and as Sarah said, it's a total non-reaction. Like, they, they say, like, hey, did you know that you were being fucking experimented on? And she's like, no. And they're like, really? You don't remember, like, these photos? And she's like, no, I don't remember. And they're like, huh. He must have drugged her. And then, like... No, she... first, Harkness goes, you're lying. Yeah. And then she leaves the room, and he goes, she must have been drugged. Which is, like, worse. fuck. But, even worse, she doesn't just leave the room. Jan tells her to leave. with, And the sign language for that is the, like, shuffle off now, children, kind of, like, hand motion. And she just does. There's no reaction on her face. Like, it's not just a failure of the script. It's a failure of, like, the directing because the actress doesn't give a reaction to being told. this. like, she's just standing there blank-faced and then is told to leave and she just turns around and leaves. And she turns around and leaves and that's the last we see of her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even though Nola and Celia are the worst examples of it, all the women in this movie are props. Yeah. Um, you know, Jan is the least prop-like, but that's only because... She exists as a character for Groves and Harkness to talk to. She exists as a prop for justification for why Groves uh, should, should be redeemed. Yes. The other big problem with the Celia and Nola stuff is the movie trying to... I mean, it's because this movie's trying to ape Jekyll and Hyde without fucking understanding how Jekyll and Hyde works, right? Yeah. Because they want that tragic ending where, like, it's a big shame that he died. But, like... You know, even if, as I said earlier, you grant, like, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing when he's the Neanderthal and you wave away Nola that way, he still fucking did human experimentation on his fucking maid. Yeah. By drugging her. Like, that's not, we aren't feeling sorry for this guy. There's no way. And it's not even like, okay, so maybe he did that too and that's a bad thing. But then, like, if Jan is supposed to be our reason for feeling sorry for him, or if, like, Ruth is supposed to be our person who's saying, no, don't shoot, maybe show him being, like, a good father or a good fiancé then, so that there's some, like, moral ambiguity here. Yeah, but like, he's just an asshole. He's just an asshole. He just fucking yells at his fiancé for existing in his life, and every time his daughter's like, hey, maybe you're working too hard, he's like, shut the fuck up and get out of my lap. Like, there's nothing about this dude that should make us feel bad that he's dead at the end. Yeah. And that makes throwing Nola and Celia away even worse. And, like, Ruth, Ruth, as a character, she... Oh, here's the thing about Ruth. Fuck. Okay. So, yes, as a prop. But if you wanted to, like, try to put yourself into the writer's brain... Right. It's like, oh, like... She leaves him, and then that's when he experiments on himself, and then goes and rapes Nola. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I can see someone going like, right. oh, he raped Nola because Ruth left him. Right, yeah, well, I can see that. And the, it, that's the, such bullshit. Well, the Ooh. thing is, is like, the one thing that the movie has a real difficult time with is, why does the Neanderthal man do anything? Yeah. Uh, because none of this stuff is motivated. He just goes out into the woods and kills people if they're men and rapes them if they're women, and, like, that's it. And the movie's, like, p- almost positing that, like, oh, that's what Primitive Man does, right? He rapes and he kills. But, like, Groves' theory is that Primitive Men are just as intelligent as modern men. And then Groves commits heinous acts, both is modern Groves and Neanderthal Groves. So there's almost something there about, like, oh, man hasn't actually advanced at all. But the movie doesn't say that. The movie does nothing with this, like, 
implied theme. Like, there, no. there's no theme really here. There's just pieces lying around that, like, maybe a better writer could put together into something. Even the thing with, like, he rapes Nola because Ruth left him, like, that could work in, like, a Jekyll and Hyde, you know, 1931 style, like, trying to track how the motivations are happening. But the movie doesn't connect those dots for you. The movie doesn't do anything with that. And I also just want to point out that it's bullshit to say, oh, this man's actions is because of a woman leaving him. That is a a thing that is put out there in today's world. So I just want to explicitly say that is bunk and I hate it. Sure. In the context of the story of this film, he has become like a weird Neanderthal man at that point. So the idea that like his conscious level frustrations are getting taken out through his subconscious as this animal thing, like, that's a different idea, because the reason why the, like, oh, the man did this because the woman did something to him is bunk is because every step of the way that person, that man, has the capacity for rational choice and can just choose not to do a thing. Absolutely. But when you have a movie that is, like, putting these things out there and not actively, like, saying things as you're pointing out, it can be taken, like, not like us, see, like... Mm-hmm. take this as evidence but it just like reaffirms those preconceived notions in someone's brain if they haven't like questioned some things right which coming back to like all of this that we've been saying the issue here like isn't necessarily the ideas themselves or even like the performances in the scenes um a lot of this is the problem of execution specifically that these ideas are kind of just being thrown out without thought for their implication. Absolutely. Which is what you were saying earlier about, like, not having the right weight. Like, you know, why does the Neanderthal man kill and rape? Well, because he's a monster in a horror movie, right? Like, that's that's it. Like, why do we try to make his death tragic? Well, because that's how horror movies end. Like, why, you know, like, yeah. why does he kidnap Ruth at the end? Well, because the monster has to kidnap a girl at the end. Yeah. Which, like, that's the only reason Ruth is in the movie. Because it's really weird when you think about this movie versus, you know, if you think of the the characters in this movie versus, like, the stock characters in all the B-movies, it's weird that the older scientist character has an older fiancé character. And meanwhile, like, Harkness and Jan, who are, like, our young breeding couple... They actually don't fall in love during this movie. There's no romance between them. They're just like an implied couple. They're serving that role, but they're not actually, like, they're filling those slots. Yeah. But they aren't actually doing it, right? And so it's like, well, why is Ruth here? That's so weird. And it's clearly because we're working backwards from he has to kidnap a lady and we're establishing that his motivations are like the base animal instincts of man. So we probably shouldn't have that lady be his daughter. That would be icky. And so, you know, we've established that. So we need another woman here. So we need Ruth. So, like, Ruth has three scenes in this movie. They are Harkness drives her up, which is, like, how we're going to introduce her and get Harkness to the house and everything. Her breaking up with Groves and then her at the cave. Yep. Right? Which is, like, nothing makes a character's nature as a prop more obvious than if the only times they appear are when the plot needs them to appear. Yeah. Yep. So in speaking about, like, the cast and how, like, in my opinion, they're trying to, like, elevate the material by really going for it. Mm -hmm. And how, like, you know, really only Beverly Garland succeeds. 
but everyone else just highlights how overwrought everything is because of how overwrought their acting is. There is, like, one exception to this, and that's Richard Crane, not in a good way. So <laughs> so this is the guy who plays Harkness. Yeah. So the thing about the overwrought acting in this is it's bad and it's hammy, but to be honest, I would rather have it than the, like, blank cardboard woodenness we normally get in B-movies. Absolutely. Which then sort of, yeah, speaking of Harkness. So Richard Crane is probably the worst person in the cast because, <laughs> like, you know, even in the scene where they're talking to Nola after she's been raped and she's describing, like, this hideous monster and... and he pulled me by the hair into the bushes and blah, blah, blah. The spittle from his face. And, like, you know, Jan's being like, oh, you know, Nola, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you're with friends now, like, you're safe. And she's trying to, like, reassure her, right? And I don't think this is even a problem with the writing. I think this is purely a problem with Crane's performance. But Crane, now, to be fair to him as a person, I think he is doing exactly what is expected of him in a movie like this, which is he is going, I am the hero. I am the male, square-jawed, uh, crew-cut voice of authority. I, I look kind of like a young William Shatner with like a <laughs> slightly taller head. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is me. I am the man. You will follow the things that I tell you to do because I talk like this. And so... There's just this, like, like that scene with Nola creates such a disconnect with the rest of the movie because of the fact that, you know, A, it's this very, like, troubling scene in the middle of this goofy fucking movie with a dude wearing a Halloween ape mask running around. But also, even within the scene, there's a disconnect because Harkness is giving me B-movie hero acting and she's giving me, like, legit rape victim acting. And so he's sitting there being like, Nola, did you see who attacked you? Had you ever seen him before? As she's like, you know, crying her heart out on the couch. And it's just, it just feels like yeah, this. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. So I think Richard Crane, in a, in a cast that isn't doing great, Richard Crane does the worst. And he's our lead. Yeah. Um, he's, he's who we stick with the most, besides perhaps Shane. Right. Who is like, who's giving the script what the script is telling him to give yeah um it's just that yeah this is like this is a movie that's trying to punch way above its weight class and if it wanted to succeed it really needed to have uh like a a story that wasn't just like Jekyll and Hyde plus Paula Dupree you know mixed together with like the ape man like it, it you know something more original than just taking these old tropes and then even if it is taking the old tropes like, think about them in a different way then. Come yeah. up with, like, a theme, a statement, something that you're trying to say with this movie other than there are some things man was not meant to tamper with. Because that's that's just a stock... That's everybody's yeah. fucking theme, right? Absolutely. So if you're going to act like, oh, this movie has something important to say, have something important to say. Have something to say, period. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so while this movie is the first case of, uh, a rape victim mm -hmm. in... Explicitly. Explicitly in Scream scene, um, it is unfortunately a super bad movie. Yeah, just because it's not thinking about what it's doing. Yeah, it honestly, it feels like... 
an, a dude writer in his, like, first creative writing class saying, like, oh, look, look what I have for you guys. Right. Isn't this great? And everyone's like, what, no, it's not. What frustrates me, though, is that, like, there's just enough here that I can imagine a better version of this movie. And, and, and that always gets your goat. Yeah. And, and you can see that there could be something here. Yeah, and not even with a lot of changes. I think the thing is... In the hands of, like, a studio budget with a studio crew, like, that base level of, like... Competency. Competency. I think this could have potentially been elevated past the cliche story, because, or even the overwrought dialogue, because you would have had a director who could make the actors more consistent in their performances across all the actors. And you all the scenes. Yes, you would have had a cinematographer who could at least make it interesting to look at. You could have had a makeup that didn't make it seem ridiculous. You could have, you know, brought it to some sort of consistency level where you aren't noticing how overwrought the dialogue is because everyone's performances are in tune with that. You know, all it really needed was that, but I think as a horror movie, I do have to give it props for trying things like you know honestly like things like showing the community's horror at the events that are happening around it like the fact that everyone is actually really horrified by the deaths of these people you know really shocked and upset by the crimes that are mm -hmm. happening around them in a way that like it never quite really feels real in a lot of these movies but they really go for it here and they um, i think even with like the photos of because we, as the audience, get to see the photos of Celia yes. as she um, goes through like a transformation, basically. And we get to feel yes. the horror. Which is also why it makes it strange that we don't see Celia's horror. <laughs> yeah. Or she doesn't have any horror. So, um, like, so, like, yeah, just allowing space for the audience to feel that. I think the movie does some stuff that's really effective in terms of being a horror movie. And it really, I really admire it for, you know, at least in 1953, I admire it. For putting some really heinous stuff in here. But the flip side is, I suspect then, that's the reason this isn't a studio movie. Sure. Because that's the stuff that would be scaring a studio away. And so we end up with a lot of, like, guys who are at, like, the low ebbs of their careers making this movie. And so it doesn't achieve what it's trying to do. Yeah. Well, then I'm... Let's... I'm kind of done talking about this movie. Uh, do you want to move on, move on to ranking? Yeah, let's let's rank this fucker. We talked about this more than I thought we were going yeah, to. Yeah, same. And yeah, whatever. It's okay. Sometimes, sometimes that it's, happens. Sometimes it's okay to get upset, to get righteous on the podcast about something that really is crappy. Yeah, this movie really well, fucking got me. It's man. just that like a lot of these bad B movies, and this is kind of you know this movie kind of feels like them. A lot of these bad movies, it's just like, yeah, this was bad. But, like, they're boring, so that you just don't have a lot to say. It's when you have a movie like this that's bad in a way that can get you, like, riled up, you know? <laughs> sure. All right, Sarah, so I think we're both agreed this isn't good. Yeah. I had stuff I did admire. You, I think, even if you can agree with those, you know, had a lot of passion for why this movie doesn't work, though. So I'm curious to see the differences in our ranges, if yeah. there is any. Where were you thinking here? So I first wanted to look at where the Paula Dupree movies are. Fair. So the first one, Captive Wild Woman, is at number 54. 
Damn. Um, <laughs> that feels like a mistake. Uh, it's because of John Carradine. Yeah. Um, just, just crushing it, basically. Mm-hmm. The second one, Jungle Woman, is ranked at number 112. Yeah, that feels right. And the third, Jungle Captive, is ranked at 122. Mm-hmm. And I did not feel comfortable ranking the Neanderthal Man um, up in the 50s. No. So I then looked at Jungle Woman at 112, and this felt like the right area. So... We've got a lot of mummy movies in this area. Oh, God, all the mummy movies are in here. I I felt like The Neanderthal Man is a better horror movie than Jungle Woman. Hmm. If you recall, because they all blend together, Jungle <laughs> Woman <laughs> has Paula Dupree coming to that one doctor's house, mm-hmm. and she's mute, mm-hmm. um, but she begins to like speak again because of the handsome man that's around, and uh, she begins to turn into a... Uh, the, the ape creature and um, kind of stalks people through the night and is, like, under the water that one yeah, point. Yeah, because she gets jealous of Handsome Man's girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of that one. And I, I thought Neanderthal Man, even though it doesn't have the same kind of spooky lighting, cinematography, even direction, the things that it's doing, I think, would put it above Jungle Woman. Hmm. The the jealous woman um, kind of thing we've, we've seen before... You know, Jungle Woman was doing a unique spin on how it was portraying those things. But I think, yeah, I would put Neanderthal Man above that. But, um, who knows, you know? (laughs) But kind of going up the list, right above Jungle Woman is The Mummy's Curse, uh, which is the one, that's the one where it's in the bayou. Is that the one, so that's the last one, where, where Ananka comes up out of the swamp. Exactly. And then has amnesia. Okay. Yeah. Kind of neat that that one's also female-centric. Mm-hmm. Um, and then above that is Face of Marble, which right. also was just like bonkers crazy. We, which we've already talked about on this episode. <laughs> so I feel like Neanderthal Man could um, compare with either of these, honestly, fairly well um, in the sense of, you know, a lot of stuff going on. Mm. How well are they doing it? Sure. Like how, how well are they handling these things? Um, but I would not really put this above... Face of Marble, Invisible Ray is right above that. I it just doesn't feel like it it goes above that for me. So your range is like one ten to one twelve, then more or less. Yeah, and we we could discuss going below one twelve. Um, I have some thoughts below there, but I don't know. Jungle Woman seems to kind of be a, a good soft spot there. So this may surprise you, but my range is lower. That does surprise me. Where um, were you looking? Well, I'll I'll walk you through my process. I, I don't know why I didn't think to compare this to the Paula Dupree movies, um, but the second you said that as we were discussing this, it was like, oh yeah. For whatever reason, the first movie that stuck into my mind as a comparison point was Condemned to Live. Because we were condemned to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> condemned to Live is down at the second last spot on the list. It's one, number 149. And its big sin, other than being poorly made, uh, is being boring. But to remind you of the plot a little bit, that's the one where, like, the kindly old dad is actually a vampire. Right. And And he can only attack it, like, when it's complete darkness, right? When it's completely dark. And, yeah, he is condemned to live because of immortality and shit. And then at the end of the movie, he has so much guilt over all the stuff he's done that he, like, tosses himself down like a bottomless pit or something. Um, And I, I guess I thought of that because it's, you know, the kindly dad is the monster. Sure. Um... But this was better than that. 
and I started looking up, uh, you know, and asking myself, is this better than The Creeper? Another movie with weird laboratory experiments with animals shit that doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, probably. You know, kept going up. Is this better than Scared to Death? Which has, like, a lot of real wacky-ass, kind of fun, clue-like energy in that, like, there's this explanation at the end of the movie of all the crazy nonsense and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not as fun as Scared to Death, but better? Yeah, probably better. Especially because, like, eh, it's probably better than Sex Maniac because it's, like, recognizably a movie. (laughs) Um, Right above Sex Maniac is Night of Terror, which is the one where... Lugosi is the butler, uh, and oh, he's like a, yeah. a he's a, a distraction from the fact that the bad guy is actually like the rich son who has been like figuring out a way to like bring people back from death or some nonsense like that. Um, I thought this was better than Night of Terror because at least this isn't as boring. But above that is the monster, and the monster, you know, isn't. Um, it's pretty early, 1925. Yeah, it's not like a great horror movie. It's still in the days of American horror comedy being the, the way that the genre was. But there was something about, like, just the, the Roland West, despite being a despicable human, has, like, a base level of, like, skill and craft and, like, creativity as a filmmaker that is not on display here. So my floor was 131. I felt like, at the least, this was better than Night of Terror. So then to find my ceiling, I started looking up, and I'm seeing stuff like Catman of Paris and She-Wolf of London and The Ape Man and Return of the Ape Man and and Jungle Captive, like, stuff that's, like, also about humans transforming into animals. It's that weird thing of, like, you know, the effects in this are trash, but, like, stuff actually happens, Mm -hmm. you know? And some of these are real guilty of just straight nothing happening in them. Um, and I got up to Bride of the Gorilla at 121, which also felt, like, weirdly comparable to this in, like, it's things happen but don't happen kind of feel. And, like, yeah. are we supposed to feel sorry for this guy or aren't we? I think that's actually a good movie to compare it to because that's 1951. Mm-hmm. Right above that, however, is Song at Midnight. And that was kind of where I topped out. I was like, I don't think this is better than Song at Midnight. I think the makeup alone in Song of Midnight (laughs) makes it higher than this. So I actually, my range was 121 to 131. So that means that what's in between our ranges is 112 to 121. So do we want to look somewhere in there? Oh, that's Jungle Woman to Jungle Captive. Yes. That's funny. (laughs) Uh... So the middle right. is The Avenging Conscience at 117. <sighs> what a weird movie to try and compare something to. Okay, well, here's here's some context, I think. As I was making my list, mm-hmm. I did look below Jungle Woman just to have an idea of, like, how low would I go? Right. And I kind of stopped around... Werewolf of London and the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde mm. at 115 and 116, which is, like, right above that, honestly. Um, because Werewolf of London, so much doesn't happen. Yeah. They're also both Jekyll Hyde. Rip-offs? Like, these are all Jekyll Hyde movies, right? Absolutely. Like, I think... I get um, caught up on The Golem. Because it's like, The Golem is so clearly a better movie, but, like... yeah. It, but doesn't have as much horror 
as as this, you know, and that's where my brain starts to get fucked sure. when we look at the list is like when something's way more horrific but not as good of a movie. I think if we just look at Werewolf of London and the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde and the Neanderthal Man in mm-hmm. terms of how well they are adapting Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> so, to be fair, 1931, 1941, the traditional Jekyll and Hydes. I think it's, you know, probably a better story in a movie to have a Jekyll who is a saint. But, book Jekyll and Hyde is about a dude, a middle-aged man, who has a lot of impulses and urges that he knows he shouldn't act on because he's a respectable Victorian doctor. So he makes himself a chemical to turn himself into another dude so he can do that shit. Yeah. That's actually closer to the Neanderthal man than uh, Werewolf of London or Jekyll and Hyde from I, 1912. I guess. I, I was meaning more of the idea of, like, you... The, the the shame of, like, turning into someone else mm. and and what you do as that person and stuff. And to me, that means Neanderthal Man goes below... Werewolf of London. Werewolf of London and the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde. I don't know if there's, like, enough to the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde. Isn't that the one where he drinks poison at the end? Yes. Yeah, so he kills himself. Like, that at least shows a bit more remorse Mm. than... This guy. It's better this way. That I don't have to stand trial. Yeah. Um, okay. The thing I'm getting caught up on is the two mummy movies above there. So try and help (laughs) me out here. Yeah. The mummy's hand is the one where they go to Egypt. It's the, the adventure. Expi- yeah, it's the adventure one. The Mummy's Ghost is the one where... Serial Killer in Mapleton. Are you sure that's not The Mummy's Tomb? You know what? I'm totally getting them mixed up. You are totally right. So that's Ghost. And then Tomb is the Serial Killer one. Because that's yeah. why it's way up at 71. Yeah. Okay. Good job, Ben. Uh, catch me on that. So... Yeah. Ooh. So, like, those mummy movies are meh, you know? Like, yeah. they're meh mummy movies. Part of me is like, I don't think this should go above Song at Midnight. And another part of me is like, I don't think this should go above Jungle Woman. I mean, I guess those two things aren't contradictory. But I do think maybe it should go above Mummy's Ghost. Because the other thing about Mummy's Ghost... Okay, listen. Listen. Yeah, I'm listening. Harkness in this movie, our hero... He kind of comes off a little bad because of the way that he is kind of dismissive of Celia and not, like, believing her story. But then, like, the second that, like, the white lady in the room who he can talk to is like, no, I think she was telling the truth. He's like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. Like, he has this 1950s patriarchy parental, you know, the man, the husband who's also your dad because he's always right kind of thing to him, right? No wonder I hated him. Um... And that's like a very 1950s man kind of thing. Yeah. But if you recall the boyfriend in The Mummy's Ghost, he was just like straight up insisting that like Ugh. his girlfriend was crazy yeah, and that like they needed to get out of there to like New York and like she's just being silly and if she just married, shut the fuck up and married him, it would all go away. Like he was way worse. Yeah. I think we should put this above Mummy's Ghost and below Jungle Woman. Yeah, I I can get behind that. Um, because even though I said that, like, you know, I think Neanderthal Man is doing some really unique things that the Jungle Woman was not doing in terms of content, 
the direction and making of the film yeah. is much better in Jungle Woman. <laughs> Ooh, what a sentence. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, cool, I'm down with that. And then, like, the issue with all these mummy movies are just that the horror is so... Blah. Yeah. He, he's shumbling after me. Oh, no. Don't, Again. Don't make the leaves. If only I could have avoided making these leaves. Ah, yeah, but it'll be fine because the priest will get a heart on and the mummy will kill him for it. Okay, so entering the list Is that... Oh, that's probably where Jason's whole, like, no sex or drugs comes from, hey? Uh, we can wait. We can wait (laughs) 30, 30 years to talk about that, yeah. Entering the list at the new number 113 is... The Neanderthal Man. The Neanderthal Man. <laughs> From 1953. Directed by E.A. Dupont. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other movies we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other movie, any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. That's also where you can submit suggestions, questions, concerns <laughs> um, through there or through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are listenable to using our RSS feed. If you enjoy the show, leave us a rating or a review. Uh, a review on Apple Podcasts, a five-star rating. These help the algorithm make the show more visible to more people so that more people can listen to it, which is good because it's a good show. I think so. And if you think that more people should listen to it, you can also just tell them about it directly. Share the show on Twitter or on Facebook life. Or, or Tumblr. Facebook. Or t- Don't share it in real life I guess because it's COVID times. Six feet distance, you can share it. Right. Share the podcast, not coronavirus. Yes. And if you really want to help the show out and you have the means, uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, uh, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. I know that like right now, there's probably better things to be like giving internet real estate to and better things to be giving, like, what extra money you have to than us. But it is still appreciated. Absolutely. So that's uh, patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we've got something really special. Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be good. I will just say every week is special. Oh, thank you. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be good, but I think it's going to be special for sure. Uh, thanks to our listener, Nicholas Harold, we have been given a copy of Dracula Istanbulda, which is the Turkish film Dracula in Istanbul. It's, uh, it's Turkish Dracula, everybody. Awesome. So I'm super excited to see what this is for the first Turkish film on screen scene. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.